Well, good day. It is a, a beautiful Sunday out there, and we continue in our seri- series, Church on Fire. Sometimes we would love to see more than we normally see. X-ray vision would help us see into the heart of a matter. Uh, telescopic vision would enable us to see farther. Night vision would enable us to see things in the dark. The book of Revelation helps us as disciples of Jesus to see what we normally would not see. Sometimes it's referred to as the apocalypse, which just means the unveiling, disclosure, revelation. In in relation to our personal lives, sometimes we welcome x-ray vision. If we're physically ill, then we welcome what an x-ray or an MRI or a CT scan would reveal to us. It would be to our benefit. We want to know. At other times, the gaze of other people unsettles us. Uh, So much talk nowadays about the surveillance state, the governments with the ability to monitor our movements through our credit card usage, smartphone usage, the internet, cameras. Who's watching us? (laughs) What do they know? How much do they know? And what are they going to do with what they know? We're not sure who's watching us and we don't trust them. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus reveals himself as one who walks among the churches. He is present here among us. He knows us. He sees us. He loves us. Do we welcome his vision? Do we welcome his insight, his counsel? Do we understand it to be an act of love? These are the questions that encourage us to read the scripture passage of this day. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. If you've grabbed a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1029. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your word. And we thank you that you came full of grace and full of truth, that you revealed the Father to us. Thank you that you are present to teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would enable us to understand your word and that we would know how to apply it to our lives today, that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching... Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this was the message of Jesus for the church in Thyatira, again, a city in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. How does Jesus, the sender of this message, present himself to the church? Well, he refers to himself as the Son of God. Verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That Son of God language, it comes right out of Psalm 2. Why would Jesus present himself this way? Well, the patron god of the city of Thyatira was Apollo, and it was understood in Greek mythology that Apollo was the son of Zeus, the greatest of all Greek gods. Domitian was the Roman emperor, and he also referred to himself as a son of Zeus, the greatest of all Greek gods. Jesus is saying to the congregation in Thyatira, I am the true son of God. I rule over the nations of this world. I will judge the political powers of Thyatira. I will judge the power of the Roman Empire. All will answer to me. Jesus says his feet are like burnished bronze. Again, those words, they come out of chapter 1, the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. If you've read the book of Daniel, then you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees a vision of a statue. The statue represents the kingdoms of this world. The problem of the statue is in the feet. The feet are made of iron and clay. In that vision, the stone of Jesus strikes the statue and the kingdoms of this world crumble. What is at the foundation of Jesus' kingdom? Well, burnished bronze, a mix of iron and copper. It's durable, it's lasting, it's strong, it's already tested by fire. The kingdom of Jesus is eternal. Its foundation, unshakable. These words were given to the church in Thyatira in order to comfort it, in order to strengthen it, in order to open its eyes to reality. At that time, the church was small, fledgling. The Roman Empire Apparently, invincible. No one foresaw its end. So from a human perspective, you would think the Roman Empire will last forever and Thyatira, the small church, will soon just be a memory. The truth is that Jesus, the head of the church, is the true Son of God. He reigns over the kingdoms of this earth. The Roman Empire will not endure forever. Where is it today? Long gone. But the church of Jesus Christ, represented there in Thyatira, continues to grow and covers our globe. It's found around the world. The kingdom of Jesus is unshakable. Things are not as they seem. If you live in this Burnaby South riding, then you know that there will be a by-election in just over a week. What are the teachings of the scriptures when we think about living in this world today and his kingdom? Well, the scriptures encourage us to pray for those that govern us. And so we should be praying for all of the candidates in this by-election. 
We are to work for the welfare of our society. The scriptures encourage us to do that. So pray for all of the candidates, study their platforms, consider the character, the competence, the values of each candidate, and then vote according to your conscience in alignment with a biblical way of seeing life. And no matter what the outcome of the election, remember that your primary allegiance is with Jesus and his kingdom, and his kingdom will endure forever, and it is unshakable. We are to be filled with hope, to be people of hope. Jesus says his eyes are like a flame of fire. His gaze, it penetrates, it reveals, it sanctifies, it sees right through the shams and the disguises. Nothing escapes his gaze. He says in verse 24, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That language is reminiscent of how God presents himself in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserves. You see, Jesus, he sees all things. He knows all things. He is not uh, fooled by posturing, by fake news, by social media images, by messaging. Before him, all things are laid bare. He is the ultimate x-ray, MRI, CT scan. He sees it all. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You know, we're not even able to judge ourselves. Only Jesus is able to truly judge our innermost thoughts, our motivations, our intentions. He's our gentle Savior. He's also our righteous judge. No one makes a fool of him. So remember, Jesus discerns everything. He sees it all. What's he aware of in Thyatira? Verse 19. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus comes with a word of affirmation. He knows that in the pressure that the church is experiencing, there are those in the church at Thyatira that have actually grown in their good works. They serve more. They practice more love. Their faith has been strengthened. Their patient endurance is more evident. They're growing. They're maturing. They're progressing in their discipleship. And Jesus commends them. So if that's you today, hear Jesus' words of affirmation. He has awesome promises for you. What else does Jesus see in Thyatira? Jesus also sees that the church needs exhortation. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It appears that the problem in Thyatira is the opposite of the problem in Ephesus. In Ephesus, it, it appears that they were doctrinally pure and they were very active in their faith, but they lacked love, lacked love for Jesus and his people. 
In Thyatira, they extend a lot of grace, but they're compromising in their doctrine and in their practice. The church in Thyatira is much more like the church in Pergamum. Jesus refers to a person by the name of Jezebel. Who is she? Probably a fictitious name here, but she represents something. Who's Jezebel in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab. She's a princess from Tyre and Sidon. She convinces Ahab and the northern kingdom to worship Baal, a fertility god, a pagan god. She also encourages the worship of the Asherah. She intimidates the true prophets of God. She intimidates Elijah. Everyone fears her. This is what Jezebel represents. In Thyatira, Jezebel, probably a fictitious name, she is a prophetess. She claims to speak the words of God. She claims to know the profound secrets of God. The Old Testament Jezebel, she encourages people to worship Baal and Asherah and at the same time worship the God of Israel. In Thyatira, the Jezebel there, she worships She encourages the worship of Jesus, but she says you can have Jesus and she says it's possible to have Jesus and participate in life as it is in Thyatira without compromising at all one's relationship with Jesus. You need to understand what was happening in the city of Thyatira. It was this thriving commercial center. And there were many trade guilds. There were bakers and tanners, bronze smiths, potters, linen workers, wool merchants, shoemakers. And in order to participate in a trade guild, you had to worship the patron god of the trade guild. You'd be invited to those feasts. You were expected to participate. If you didn't participate in the idol feast, you were removed from the guild. And what would this mean for you? Well, loss of face, loss of goodwill, loss of business. Christians were tempted to compromise. Jezebel, she encouraged both and thinking. You can have Jesus and participate in the trade guild. You can have Jesus Participate in the idol feast. Practice sexual immorality. It won't affect your relationship with Jesus. That was her message. She presented her message as spiritual wisdom. This is the way the world works. Just go with it. It's for your personal benefit. How does she mislead and seduce people? Well, it's with her teaching. She tantalizes people with what she calls the deep things. It's like she has a knowledge that others do not have. She masters the deep things. That description, deep things, it's, it's an apt description of so many movements in our, in our day, new age movements, esoteric movements. And behind their, these movements, there is always the same lie. These movements come to us and say, we have a secret knowledge that's available only to a few. The guru presents himself or herself as supposedly being a bearer of this hidden knowledge, living on a higher spiritual plane, and the only way to gain access into what they have is to become their follower, join their movement. I remember being in another country, and I was studying another religious movement. It was a a New Age movement. And the leaders of that movement invited me in and said this to me, Ray, you have a special spiritual gift. If you just join us, you can be one of the leaders. 
It's the kind of thing that plays with the ego. It's the lie of Satan. It's the lie as old as history itself that Satan possesses the deep things, the secret things, and God is concealing something from us. What do the scriptures say? Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we might do all the words of this law. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So God knows the deep things, not Satan. If we want to understand more, if we want to know more, then God is the one that we should go to, and only him. Why does Jesus detest this both-and thinking so much? Why is he so intolerant in relation to it? Well, when people begin to embrace this kind of both-and thinking, when they live in the world of compromise, Jesus is less Jesus. He is no longer the way, the truth, the life. He just becomes a way, a truth, possibly a life, a good man, someone to admire. He's one more in a long list of religious figures. Ultimately, all that the Father planned to do through Jesus is being undermined in the lives of the followers of Jezebel. You see, this mixing, this syncretism, it places us in control. (laughs) We develop a vision of Jesus that suits us. We develop a a vision of ourselves that suits us. We invent our own ways of salvation, and the gospel is gutted. The new path is presented as light. Satan doesn't show up with a frontal attack saying, Jesus is not Savior and Lord. No, he just comes with another option, another way, another alternative. The Jezebel spirit of our day doesn't say, deny Jesus. No, she says, you can have Jesus and be in. You can have Jesus and be prosperous. It's all okay. This is the way the world works. Throughout our North American history, um, people have been invited into secret orders, and some that call themselves Christian have entered these secret orders in order to, to go a little higher in government, in order to enter higher levels of management in large corporations. And when I have talked to those that call themselves Christians who have entered secret orders, why did you do it? The answer I always get, invariably, is so that I could do charity. No one has to join a secret order in order to do charity. If you want to do good, just do it. Walk with your brothers and sisters in Christ and do good. You don't need to join a secret order. That's a lie. Now, most of us don't face that temptation. For most of us, The temptation is to be a little more silent in relation to our faith in Jesus in our day. Rather than unsettle things at home or in the workplace, just go quiet. Participate with the crowd without exposing our primary allegiance to Jesus. That's the temptation. You see, Satan, he has a a vested interest in compromise. 
He has a vested interest in it because when we embrace compromise, then God is less God. Jesus is less Jesus. And we are no longer the light, the salt that we were intended to be in this society. Jesus also says that Jezebel encourages sexual immorality. Idolatry and immorality often walk hand in hand. And again, sexual immorality, what it just does is it distorts the image of God on earth. It distorts the image of God in human beings, in marriages, in families, in society, in the church. That image of faithfulness, of union, of permanence, of dedication. It impacts us as whole persons, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And eventually, society comes undone. It's for this reason that Jesus detests compromise. Because he knows what it leads to. He wants our good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he faced tremendous pressure when the Nazi regime was rising to power in Germany. Pressure to compromise. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he says that the human soul is capable of only one all-embracing devotion, one all-encompassing allegiance, only one. And Jesus would agree. Only one. What will Jesus do with Jezebel and her followers if they don't repent? Well, it's just something fascinating here. He gives Jezebel time to repent. The judgment of God is not impulsive. It's not arbitrary. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He's patient. Read through the scriptures. God is much more patient than any of us would ever be. His judgment never comes without a call to repentance. But in this case here, Jezebel refuses to repent. And so Jesus says, I will make her physically sick, and those who participate in her practices will also suffer the consequences of their actions. You cannot follow Jezebel and follow Jesus. You can't follow Jezebel and escape illness. The call is to repent. Again, that's the grace of Jesus. And then thirdly, he will strike her children dead. Children in this context are the spiritual followers of Jezebel. Their spiritual adultery leads to spiritual sickness and eventually to death. And why would Jesus judge in this way? Because he wants to save the church. If the church in Thyatira allows compromise to persist, it will be its end. So Jesus demands repentance for compromise. Jesus demands repentance for compromise. He unveils the conditions of our souls so that we might be restored. His intentions are always redemptive. His call to repentance is always an act of love and grace. You see, Satan seduces us with a secret knowledge that will eventually bind and blind us. But Jesus, he comes to us with words of love and words of truth, calls us to repentance so that we might truly see and be set free. Now, if this is so obviously true, why is it so difficult to deal with Jezebel in real life? If Jezebel represents in our lives an idol or a god or a saint, someone that we have learned to worship 
with our families. That idol, that god, that saint, it often represents our identity. It it represents our history. It represents family. It represents a, a belief that lingers. It feels that when we rid ourselves of that idol that we're betraying something. We need to remember that an idol is never spiritually neutral. There are always spiritual forces at work through idols. We cannot hold on to our idols and follow Jesus. We won't grow in our relationship with Jesus if we hang on to our idols. Remember that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes it's hard to deal with Jezebel because Jezebel is our friend, our sister, our daughter. Or if it's a guy, it's our brother, our son, our friend. And so we see this person that we love, that we know, practicing sin. And if we keep our moral stand, will we lose that relationship? If we hold to our our stand, if we come full of grace, but also full of the truth of Jesus, will that person understand when we talk to him or her? And if I speak truth as I understand it, will that person then leave me? And of course, that also is an expression of self-love. It reveals my fear of rejection. So often in the life of the church, I have seen men and women compromise their moral stand because someone close to them is practicing sin. I've observed theologians change their theological positions because of what someone that they love has done. It becomes very, very practical. Who do we really hold to? Whom do we love? Do we love Jesus with all that we are? Do we truly believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And that it is when we embrace him full of grace and full of truth that we truly are set free and receive all that he has for us. You see, the lie of compromise is that there's another way. So if Jesus would come to us today and say, I know your deeds, what would he be seeing? Would Jesus be saying to us, come back to me, I have healing for you? Would Jesus be talking to us about our both and thinking and saying, don't go down that path, repent of that, come back to me? Would Jesus be speaking to us about our healing, not only for our own restoration, our own freedom, but also so that those around us might be set free and be healed? Would it be talking to us about our our immorality, our sexual immorality, so that we might be set free from the seduction and destruction of that path? Some time ago, one of our local politicians said, you know, the moral fabric of our society is coming undone. He was referring to Burnaby in New Westminster. It's coming undone, and everyone feels it. Well, if I believe that to be true, but if we are in the both-hand camp, if we are compromised, if we're in this syncretistic camp, if we're in the promiscuous camp, we have very little to contribute to the healing of our society. 
We've removed ourselves from the battle. The good news is that Jesus provides grace to repent. Jesus penetrates with his his gaze to cleanse us, not just to find information about us and condemn us. No, his desire is that we repent and be restored, that we come back to him, that we love him as we did at first. Notice what he says in verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus has no desire to overburden the church. He knows us. He knows our limits. The people in Thyatira, they don't need new teaching. They just need to hold fast to what they have. And what did they have? Well, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the apostolic teaching. All of that pointing to Jesus. They had Jesus, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door to life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, and the life, the true vine. They had Jesus. They had all that they needed. And what does he have for those that hold on to him? Some really awesome promises. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those who endure, those who overcome, they will be given authority over the nations. Again, the language comes right out of Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, the Son of God is given the nations. He reigns over the kingdoms of this world. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things today. Those disciples who overcome, even in the face of the pressure to compromise, they receive the authority given to Jesus by the Father. We often don't think about this too deeply. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes, that those that are in Jesus are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is now. That in Jesus we have authority over the evil one and demonic forces. In part, we experience what it means to reign with him. When Jesus returns, we will reign with him forever. Do we understand that that is the future? Jesus detests compromise today because he doesn't want us to miss out on what he has prepared for us. The morning star. The morning star was a symbol of uh, the Messiah's reign in the Old Testament. It was also, in the Roman Empire, a symbol of their power and sovereignty and victory. Jesus says to the disciples in Thyatira, I'm the morning star. The morning star, it appears at the darkest time in the night. It appears when there is no sign of dawn. But when it appears, at first small and faint, you know that the night cannot withstand the dawn. It's just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. Bob Goodsword has written, the morning star pulls the morning in behind it, 
just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. So Jesus is coming back, and he invites us to enter into his victory, to reign with him forever. You see, Jesus, he delights in this. He delights in our reign with him. The sure promises of Jesus should fill us with confidence, with hope, with joy, with faith, courage. They motivate us to live through every shadowy valley, to walk through every parched wasteland, holding on to him. And he says, if you have an ear, if you have an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? We have eyelids, we do not have earlids. Now, when I talk to my wife, she thinks that I do. And if you're married or if you talk to your parents, they probably think that you have earlids as well. It's interesting how we can develop selective listening, kind of hear some things. Do we hear what Jesus says to us? I believe if Jesus walked among us and spoke to us individually, collectively, he would come with words of affirmation. He would see your effort to follow him, to be faithful to him. I believe he also would have a word of exhortation because none of us follow him perfectly. I also believe that he would remind us of his sure promises. You know, that fledgling church in Thyatira, it wasn't that big, and it looked like because of the pressure of Rome, it would soon go away. Rome appeared to be invincible. Book of Revelation is given because things are not as they seem. Human kingdoms, they rise, they fall, they disappear. The only kingdom that is unshakable, that will endure forever, is the kingdom of Jesus. That is the truth of God. So may we hold on to Jesus and his sure promises. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So you may have been attending here for a while and you've never uh, decided for Jesus. I was talking to a friend the other day and he prayed with someone in the cafe that had been here at Willingdon for seven years and had never made the decision to follow Jesus. So maybe that's you here this morning or maybe you've found yourself in a position of compromise and you've never positioned yourself actually before Jesus and said, Jesus... You are my Savior and Lord. I surrender my life completely to you. If that's you this morning, then hear the Lord inviting you to know him, to surrender your life to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's your desire to know Jesus. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender 
my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. Lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of, make me into the kind of person you created me to be, Jesus. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then I I would invite you to go to the prayer center. There are people that would love to receive you there and encourage you in your journey. If you want to come forward, you can do that after the service. I'd just like us as disciples of Jesus to take a moment to reflect in the presence of our Lord. Just close your eyes. As I I said, based on the scriptures here, Jesus does come with words of affirmation and encouragement and exhortation and promise. He knows us. He sees us. May we be grateful because he loves us and wants for us the life that he came to give us. So is Jesus affirming you today for faithfully following him? Hear his words of affirmation. The scriptures tell us that our works do not go unnoticed before the Father. Is Jesus inviting you to hold on to him and his word? Hear his encouragement. Is is Jesus inviting you and I to repent for compromise? then let us receive the grace to repent. And may we turn to him. Is Jesus inviting us to hold on to his promises? May we hold on. Jesus, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. You came to give us life and to give it abundantly. Thank you. Forgive us for compromise. Forgive us for turning our eyes to others or to other things for life. You are the only one who opens the way to the Father. You are the only one who sends the Holy Spirit to abide in us. You are the only one who leads us as our good shepherd. So may we follow you. May we live lives surrendered to you with our faith firmly deposited in you. You have all things in your hands and we are so grateful that we can live under your leadership and under your care, under your sovereignty.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you.